Struggle. A forceful or violent effort to get free of restraint or resist attack. To engage in conflict. Strive to achieve something in the face of difficulty or resistance. To make one's way with difficulty. My name is Josh, and this is The Plain Podcast. How's it going, guys? Uh, this is Josh. This is The Plain Podcast. I hope you love that new intro music. Um, unfortunately, I don't know who the author is, or the musician rather not really good i think i need an upgrade i've got one on the way hopefully soon also speaking of soon i want to apologize that this episode has taken just forever i mean honestly this is it's been ridiculous and it's not for lack of trying to get this thing recorded to get this thing uploaded it's <laughs> it seems like it almost every time every other time at least that I've been trying to do this something goes wrong something fouls up something messes up and if I had longer hair I'd probably have pulled it out by now to be completely honest with you so that said I apologize that this has taken so very long for the second episode to come out I hope you'll forgive me I hope you'll continue to listen as we lovingly and begrudgingly say also on the farm, we are in the middle of spring's work, which means, for me anyway, lots of fencing, lots of time in vehicles, lots of running around, getting stuff done because we're trying to get the cows and the horses out onto grass pastures. So that means we got to get the fences ready, make sure the electric fence is working, make sure the barbed wire isn't loose and all over the place. You know, we've got to make sure we've got enough posts and that sort of thing. We've got to get the ground tilled. We've got to get the seeds planted for whatever crops are growing this year. Praying like crazy for rain because we need more of it. And just all out insanity trying to do other small projects that have either been put on the back burner or are now delayed because of the spring's work. So that will put a bit of a hindrance as my family and I try to figure out how I'm going to do this, try to figure out just how we're going to kind of how I'm going to work this podcast into my weekly and everyday life. Having better, faster internet would be would be great because right now I don't get to do this at home. The only downtime I really have is when other people are asleep or away. Or if I'm, like I stated in la the last episode, if I'm having a really bad back day. Thankfully, those aren't happening quite as often. Even though, you know, I do have some pain here and there. I'm actually able to work a little bit more, which is good in, you know, as far as life goes. But it's also kind of a bummer because I really enjoy doing this when things work anyway. So, again... That said, I apologize. We're trying to, uh, I'm trying to get this going, trying to get this continued and figured out as things move along here. Unfortunately, it's going to be a process. There's, there's just no way around that. There's no way I can know exactly when I'm going to have time for it because with farming, with ranching, everything's different you know every day is different every day is a new challenge so hopefully i can get some consistency going here 
Anyway, welcome to episode two. Welcome to The Struggle. In this episode, we're going over some what is now old news, <laughs> very old news. <laughs> going to be talking about Trump versus the world, about him uh, pulling out of the Iran nuclear deal. And we're also going to cover kind of my story, um, my life, what happened with me uh, a few years ago, and why religion and and my my faith and my beliefs along those lines really tie into most of the things I do, most of the things, you know, the big decisions, the big decisions, and even some of the small ones. And just, I wouldn't say why, why I am the way I am, but at the very least, you know, why it shapes my decisions and how it shaped me into who I am. So we'll go over that. I'm also going to uh, touch on the royal wedding. I, I am adding that in to my script here uh, since it's been so long and I'm already talking about old news. And then last but not least, spoiler warning, Infinity War review. If you haven't seen Infinity War yet, uh, you're probably waiting for it to come out on video. So if you're one of those people like me where you don't always make it to the theater, you don't always have time to go out and do that sort of thing, I will let you know ahead of time, and that will also be toward the end of the podcast. I'm going to go over the Infinity War, my thoughts, how I felt about it, you know, a little bit of the story, a little bit of details, not too much of stuff that'll give it away. But if basically, if you haven't been to the theater by this point, you're either not going to see it or you're waiting for it to come out, you know, as a release in home, you know, to, to purchase. So spoilers ahead for that. Continuing on, Trump versus the world, man. So this was interesting to me because there were several ways that Trump could have gone about it, and he went about it in Trumpian style. He went about it in the style that we more or less expected him to. He just took action. He just said, okay, we're done, done, clear, took off, got out of it, and that was it. So I started to look into some of this, and there's a few things I want to read, quite a few things I really want to dive into about it to help myself and hopefully help you understand and try to form a little bit better opinion. Um, to, to, before we start here, I don't think the deal should have been done in the first place. I don't think it was a good idea for the U.S., I couldn't care less about the European Union and the EU. I think they're a horrible model for the United States to go after. The United States needs to do its own thing. But just the U.S., looking at the U.S. and Iran, it's been a rocky relationship, to say the least. Um, almost an abusive relationship, I would say. But the United States shouldn't have entered into it. But then the fact that we were into it, it should have been taken care of a little more delicately than it was, but not to the point where it was like trying to get troops out of the Middle East. Not that level of delicate because that was also ridiculous. Anyway, that uh, with that being said, 1953, the CIA backed a coup and overthrew the Iranian Prime Minister Mohammad Mossadegh, I believe I'm saying that correctly, and they restored the Shah, the the ruler of Iran, to power. 
So this is a brief history, by the way. Um, we're going to be going through from the 1950s all the way up to the, to the 2010s. So about 50, 60 years of history in here. So in 1953, the U.S. provided the um, increasingly autocratic Shah hundreds of millions of dollars over the next 25 years. Hundreds of millions of dollars from 1953 to 1978. 25 years. So think about that for a minute as you think about U.S. history. Some of you know it much better than I do since I've only been alive uh, from the 80s. You know the history better in the 50s, 60s, and 70s about the struggle and the struggle with the economy in the U.S. and all the war mongering that happened and that craziness. So that this uh, overview, this uh, historical overview, goes from 53 to 1979. The Iranians overthrew the Shah and Ayatollah Ruhollah Khomeini returned from whatever exile he was on. Again, uh, history I'm not aware of, but this, again, just some small details to see how we got to where we're at today. He seizes power, declares essentially war against the United States by calling the United States the Great Satan. Militants stormed the U.S. Embassy in, um, no, not, not Ramad, in uh, Tehran, Iran's capital, and held 52 Americans hostage for 444 days. I believe this was the Iranian hostage crisis. If I'm wrong about that, somebody please correct me. At The Plain Podcast, email me, theplainpodcast at gmail.com, or you can look me up on Facebook now. I do have a Facebook, The Plain Podcast. If I'm wrong, please let me know. Uh, so from that point forward, after that ended, the United States ended their diplomatic relations with Iran. So for, for the next 10 years, 1980 to 1990, the U.S. supported Saddam Hussein in the Iran-Iraq War, which I believe was the Iran-Contra War. Again, if I'm wrong, correct me. And the estimate was during that time before the ceasefire, almost 1.5 million people were killed. That includes civilians and, and uh, military. So then 1983... Hezbollah, which has been backed by Iran for quite some time, at least the last 35, 40 years, uh, they bombed a U.S. embassy in Lebanon, and they also bombed uh, barracks in Beirut. It was a U.S. Marine Corps barracks. In total, 258 Americans were killed. Then 1986, the Reagan administration exposed uh, was exposed for covertly selling arms to Iran and using the proceeds to bank war to bankroll a secret war in Central America. Now, this is something I know a little bit about. I know Ollie North was the fall guy for this. I also know he got paid off. But again, this this is something I would love to go into someday just to look at it because when I first saw this, I knew a little bit about the situation, but I don't know the details. If you do know the details, if you got some links you can send me, that'd be terrific. I would love to talk about this sometime soon. Continuing on, though, 87, 1987 to 1988, U.S. and Iranian forces began to clash in the Persian Gulf. And then um, I think this is a mistake here for, it says 1998, but it must be 1988. Uh, it says the U.S. mistakenly shot down an Iranian passenger jet flying above the Strait of Hormuz and killed 290 people. 
and in the same time, Iran and Iraq reach a ceasefire. So that's got to be in the in the uh, 80s. That's got to be 1988. I'm assuming it's a typo because the Gulf War took place, or the first Gulf War, if you will, took place not too long after that. So then, in the 1990s, Iran is accused of supporting Hamas and Hezbollah in terrorist attacks around the world. In 95, President Clinton imposed far-reaching oil and trade sanctions on Iran. Then, two years later, in 97, Iran elected a reformist president, Mohammad Khatami, and the U.S. started to scale back sanctions. But then, in 2001, after 9-11, the U.S. and Iran worked together to coordinate attacks on the Taliban and send aid to Afghanistan. And then a year later, not even quite a year later, in 2002, Bush calls Iran part of the axis of evil, which included Saddam Hussein and, you know, uh, uh, why am I having a brain fart right now? I'm sorry. Bin Laden and basically the heads of the terrorist states. And so Washington released information in that year about Iran's nuclear program. Now, this is where things really fire up. In 2003, after outing Saddam Hussein and occupying Iraq, the United States accuses Iran of helping Shiite militants kill American soldiers. In 2005, hardline conservative Mohammed Ahmadinejad becomes Iran's president, issues a series of provocative statements against the U.S. and Israel. Now, let's get something straight. Every single Muslim country, every country where the Muslim faith either rules it or dictates its laws, has called for the death of Israel since its reformation, since it was reformed in, was what was it, the... Uh, was it the 50s, I think, or the 60s, after the UN declared that that certain amount of land would be set aside for Israel because it was historically its homeland. Now, I know there's been a lot of stuff going on with Israel in that too. I wish I had time to research it and go into it more, but that again is something I will want to talk about in the future. It is something I definitely want to cover because I feel like it's really important to know both sides of the story and to make your own decision as to how you truly feel instead of going by the garbage of the mainstream media. Continuing on with our brief overview of history. So that was 2005. 2006 to 2010, the U.S. succeeded in getting four rounds of U.N. sanctions passed against Iran and they demanded that Tehran, the capital, stop enriching uranium for nuclear weapons purposes and stop exporting weapons and so in those they also set banking trade and travel restrictions against iran 2009 president obama took office and promised engagement with iran months later um, uh ahmadinejad i believe i'm saying that correctly the president of iran was re was re-elected after a heavily, heavily contested vote and violent protests that were cracked down on by the Iranian Guard, I believe it's the the Republican Guard. Is that who their uh, who their guys are at the Capitol? I again, if I'm wrong, correct me. If I'm right, let me know. Um, but anyway, 
so I remember that because there were riots in the streets because the people were claiming that he was not the one they elected. It was, um, uh, was it, it wasn't Ronnie. I can't remember who ran against him, but I remember the people saying that the election was a hoax, essentially the people of Iran, or at least that was the news coming out of there. So, um, protests, us and Israel covertly sabotaged Iran's nuclear program. So that's 2009. That's not even 10 years ago. The U.S. was working to sabotage Iran's nuclear weapons program. Okay? Two years later, 2011, U.S. and Iran support opposing sides in Syria's civil war. This is where things really dial up and really heat up with the U.S. and Iran. So after violence breaks out, Tehran actively helps Syrian President Assad, Bashar Assad, while Washington slowly expanded the aids to the rebels, which we know turned out to be ISIS. <laughs> 2012, a year later, the United States begins working with countries around the world to reduce oil purchases from Iran. And a year after that, Iran's exports drop by half, and its economy starts to fall apart in shambles, kind of like Venezuela is now because nobody's buying their oil and so the economy that is based on one natural resource starts to plummet. 2012 to 2013, several rounds of nuclear regulation between Iran and world powers fail to make progress. Again, things are heated up. There's a lot of tension between the war that's going on in Syria and people picking sides. And the international community telling Iran, no, you will not have a nuclear program. You'd have to stop and have even taken actions to subvert and sabotage it. So then this timeline ends in 2013. Hassan Rouhani assumes the Iranian presidency and promised a new course of moderation. But of course, even regardless of that moderation, we've continued to see that. So... All of that jazz being said, in 2015, Iran agreed with the U.S., France, the U.K., China, Russia, and Germany. So basically, essentially the EU plus Russia, China, the U.S., and the U.K. So they agreed to a long-term deal on its nuclear program with what the, this group was called the P5 plus one group of world powers. And so the story I was able to pull up for some, uh, let's say, for just, just to kind of shed some light on what the deal was about, right? The, uh, the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action uh, was what it was called for this agreement, for this deal, this treaty, okay? So under accord, Iran agreed to limit its sensitive nuclear, nuclear activities and allow international inspectors in to check things out in return for the lifting of the sanctions that had now crippled Iran's economy. That's what this that's what this whole thing was supposed to be about, right? So no more enrich, enrichment, no more weapons development. They were just strictly going to have nuclear power for the sake of electricity. That was it. So Iran had two facilities, and I now forgive me again if I pronounce these incorrectly, Natanz 
and Fordo. Not Frodo. This isn't the Hobbit. Fordo. Where the uranium hexafluoride gas was fed into centrifuges to separate out the isotope U-235. Excuse me. So, what I found out is that low-enriched uranium, which has a 3-4% to concentration of the isotope U-235, can be used to produce fuel for nuclear power plants. Weapons-grade uranium is 90% enriched. Okay? So, in July 2015, Iran had almost 20,000 centrifuges. Under the agreement, it was limited to installing no more than just over 5,000 of the oldest and least efficient centrifuges in Natanz until 2026. Okay, so over, it would have been about 11 years. So, 15 years after the deal's quote-unquote implementation day, which was January 2016. Wait a minute, that math doesn't add up. 2016 to 2026? Interesting. Okay, well, <laughs> that's the information I have. <laughs> Let's continue on. So, Iran's uranium stockpile was reduced by 98% to around 660 pounds. And that figure was not to be exceeded, according to the agreement, until 2031. So that was the 15 years later, okay? It also must, uh, it also had to keep the stockpiles of enriched uranium at 3.67%. So, by January 2016, Iran had drastically reduced the number of centrifuges that they had installed in Natanz and Fordo and shipped tons of low-enriched uranium to Russia. In addition, research and development could only take place at Natanz and be limited until 2024. So for eight years, they'd have to limit their research. I'm not sure how you limit research, but it doesn't seem like an easy thing for somebody to lord over, to, to watch over and make sure that that's actually happening. So no enrichment was permitted at Fordo until 2031, again, 15 years later. And the underground facilities had to be converted into... Um, Nuclear, nuclear physics, or excuse me, the underground facility at Fordo had to be converted into a nuclear physics and technology center, and the 1,044 centrifuges at the site will produce radioisotopes for use in medicine, agriculture, industry, and science. Not for military purposes, but again, that seems really loose to me. How do you... How do you stop somebody from using it for military purposes? I mean, if you're enriching uranium, even if it's not at that 90% level, tells me that it's easy enough to just do and just say, oh, whoops, we made a mistake. Here, let's just put it away. You know what I'm saying? That sounds crazy to me. That sounds like such loose regulation for something that is so extremely dangerous to the rest of the world that... A country who wants to destroy the U.S., wants to destroy Israel, wants to basically destroy what is known as the West, you know, it just doesn't make any sense to me. 
so continuing on, um, Iran had been building a heavy water nuclear facility near the town of Iraq. A is spelled A-R-A-K, not Iraq, Iraq. Spent fuel from a heavy water reactor contains plutonium, which could be suitable for a nuclear bomb. World powers had originally wanted Iraq dismantled because of the pro proliferation risk, because of the risk of what this runoff, this wastewater, could be used for. And under an interim nuclear deal agreed to in 2013, Iran agreed not to commission or fuel the reactor. But again, nothing about oversight, nothing about regulation, nothing about making sure that it actually was, was going where they said it was going. So under the new agreement in 2016, the JCPOA, Iran said it would redesign the reactor so it wouldn't produce any weapons-grade plutonium and that all spent fuel would be sent out of the country as long as the modified reactor exists. So that's a little bit easier because you can see the logs. But again, who's checking? Who's there physically checking these things to making sure that this spent plutonium is being kicked out, of being sent out of the country and away to somewhere where it's not at least in more dangerous hands. So, again, under the deal, Iran was not to be permitted to build additional heavy water reactors or, accu or accumulate excuse me, any excess heavy water until 2031, 15 years later. Now, Iran had every country that's covert activity. Iran is definitely one of these countries that does it more so and will lie to your face about it, right? Because why would the U.S. and Israel have to work together just to try to sabotage their nuclear weapons program if they were complying to even the, the 2013 arrangements, not to mention the 2016 arrangements, which we'll continue to get into. So at the time of the JCPOA, President Obama and his administration expect, expressed confidence that the plan would prevent Iran from building a nuclear, nuclear militarized weapons program in secret. Iran, according to the administration, they said it had committed to quote-unquote, extraordinary and robust monitoring, verification, and inspection. End quote. Inspectors from the International Atomic Energy Agency, IAEA, which is the global nuclear watchdog, uh, they're the people with the countdown clock, I believe, the countdown clock to doomsday, they would continuously monitor Iran's declared nuclear sites, and also verify that no fissile material is moved covertly to a secret location to build a bomb. Right there, think about that. Monitor their declared nuclear sites. Now I know the U.S. and other countries have satellites that can read thermal, magnetic, electronic, all sorts of different readings, right? Probably stuff we don't even know about yet, if we're being honest with ourselves. I'm not trying to be a conspiracy theory nut here, but let's be realistic for a second. The government doesn't tell us everything. The government doesn't tell other governments everything. Why would Iran be any different? Why would they say, oh yeah, these are all of our sites, but wait a minute, we've got these other five sites over here, but they're not declared. 
So the people who are supposed to be the watchdogs for this are only going to the sites that Iran tells them to go to. Okay, so in the plan until 2031, 15 years later, Iran will have 24 days to comply with any of the International Atomic Energy Agency access requests. If it refuses, an eight-member joint commission, which included Iran, will rule on the issue. It can decide on punitive steps, including the reimposition of sanctions, and a majority vote by the commission would be the deciding factor. So, the people watchdogging would only go to the places where Iran says, yep, these are the facilities, the, the facilities we agreed to, you know. And then <laughs> Iran also has a seat on, its bo on the board that decides its punishment if it fails to follow the rules. How does this make any sense? And see, here's the thing. I, I briefly read some of this stuff, but I'm, I'm also going through this information again, you know, over a week later and just realizing how insane this actually sounds. You know, the politicians, the mainstream media will say whatever they want to get you to think on their side. I'm just presenting the facts from several different sources. This is from the BBC, man. They... You know, and so if you want to look at history, the BBC, I think, does some of the best reporting out there, but they also have an axe to grind, too, every once in a while, or depending on who's writing the story. But this thing is insane. Iran basically has the say-so on how this whole deal goes, and at the same time, <laughs> gets a, all, these sanction, all these economic sanctions lifted, and gets a ton of money in the deal. A bunch of money that was shipped over on pallets and in different uh, in different currencies and just sent away cash money. And the people of Iran didn't even see that money. It all stayed in the government and the military, but that's neither here nor there. We'll hopefully get to that eventually here. So, before July 2015, Iran had the large stockpile of enriched uranium, but they had and they had almost 20,000 centrifuges, right? enough to create 8 to 10 bombs. That's according to the Obama administration. U.S. experts estimated then that if Iran had decided to rush making its, its nuclear weapons stockpile, it would only take 2 to 3 months until it had the 90% enriched uranium to build a nuclear, nuclear weapon, and this is what they called the quote-unquote breakout time. So the Obama administration said to the JCPOA, to the agreement, um, that they would remove the key elements Iran would need to create a bomb and increase its breakout time to one more year. Pardon me, I had to cough there. The Obama administration, oh, um, excuse me, I already went through that. Iran also agreed not to engage in activities, including research and development, which could contribute um, to the development of a nuclear bomb. But again, who's watchdogging this? Just because they're not researching at, an, at one of these declared sites doesn't mean it's not happening. Okay? So in December 2015, the International Atomic Energy Association Board of Governors voted to end its decade-long investigation 
into the possible military dimensions of Iran's nuclear program. So they ended the investigation into what we knew, what the world knew Iran was up to, making nuclear weapons. So the agency's director general, whose name is Yukiya Amano, said the report concluded that until 2003, Iran had conducted a coordinated effort, quote-unquote, on a, quote, range of activities relevant to the development of nuclear explosive devices, end quote. Iran continued with that activity until 2009, but after that, there were no, quote-unquote, credible indications of weapons in development. So, in other words... Whatever they were allowed to inspect, they couldn't find. So sanctions previously imposed on Iran by the UN, the US, and the European Union were the attempt to force Iran to halt the uranium enrich enrichment um, because the economy ended up being so crippled due to the lack of oil exports, due to the lack of banking, due to the lack of travel, tourism, that sort of thing. And so, yeah, there might be some truth to it, but at the same time, just because the country looks broke doesn't mean the government's not busy doing something else. Excuse me. So, apparently, those sanctions cost Iran more than the estimated amount of $160 billion in oil revenue for four years, from 2012 to 2016. And that's not including the sanctions that were already imposed that had been uh, not repealed but pulled back a little bit, but also the imposition of continuing sanctions from the Bush administration until this deal had been reached with the Obama administration. So, under the deal, Iran gained access to over $100 billion in frozen assets from all around the world, most of that money coming from the U.S., and was able to resume selling oil on international markets and using the global financial system for trade. The deal said should Iran violate any aspect of that deal, the U.N. sanctions would automatically snap back, quote-unquote, uh, into place for 10 years with the possibility of a five-year extension. If the Joint Commission... When wasn't able to resolve a dispute, it would be referred to the UN Security Council. Iran also agreed to the continuation of the U United Nations arms embargo, so they couldn't trade or ship weapons um, on the country for up to five years, although it could end earlier if the atomic energy guys were satisfied that the nuclear program was entirely peaceful. So in other words, again, if they were just using it for electricity, for power, not for weapons or milita military reasons. Uh, also, the ban of the import of ballistic missile technology would also remain in place for up to eight years. So from 2016 to 2024. So, all that being said... That's what the deal kind of entailed. That's, you know, this, the, the summary of what was in there. So kind of a 
Kind of a brief overview. So Iran sacrificed two-thirds of its ability to enrich uranium, which, of course, you can't have a bomb without the uranium, or at least not the nuclear bomb that they were researching and trying to build. <clears throat> so all but 6,000 of Iran's 20,000 centrifuges were, to, again, to be shut down. But again, there was no oversight for that part. And the, uh, the International Atomic Energy Agency, not Association, I'm sorry, I got that wrong before, were to be the ones monitoring the active centrifuges. There, there is nothing that I'm aware of in the deal that said that they were going to monitor the centrifuges that Iran had suppo supposedly taken down and put into storage, I guess, or something. I'm not sure what was going to happen with them. Uh, the information I found didn't exactly cover that. But anyway, point two, Iran would export all but the 660 pounds were, if you like the metric system, around 300 kilograms of its entire stockpile of low-enriched uranium, which went north to Russia. The combined effect of the measures will would be to place Iran about 12 months away from having enough weapons-grade uranium for one nuclear bomb, which was compared to that breakout time of three or four months that we talked about. And so in 2016, January 2016, essentially they could have had at least one bomb by January 2017. And here we sit two and a half years later, almost June of 2018. So that they could have two bombs. And you know what? If nobody's monitoring where these other centrifuges were going, who knows how many more bombs they could have or could be working on. Again, I, I'm just, I, I know this is kind of speculation, but I'm just trying to be rational here. I mean, if somebody came and told you, you know, how to, let's, let's say you had your own business. And if somebody came in and said, look, we don't like the way you're running your business. We think it's dangerous. So this is what we're going to do. And you agree to the deal. And they say, okay, you have to, you know, you have to get rid of, let's say it's a factory. You have to get rid of, you know, two-thirds of your employees. Okay, well, who's monitoring that? You know what I mean? Let's say you have multiple factories across the, across the world. Who's going, you know, or just even in your state, let's say you have multiple factories or even across the country. Let's say across the U.S. you have 30 factories, and they say, well, you got to shut those factories down. Oh, okay, I'm shutting down two-thirds of my factories and firing two-thirds of my employees. And, and the agreement is, is that they'll only monitor the factories that you say are still going. People hide money all the time. People hide stuff all the time. Why do you think it's called the black market? Just because, you know, it doesn't exist, quote-unquote. I'm doing air quotes with my fingers. You can't see me but I'm doing air quotes with my fingers. Just because they say it's not happening doesn't mean it's not happening. Anyway, I'm sorry, I will continue. Point three, the combined effect of the measures would... Uh, oh, I'm sorry, I already went over that. Uh, point four, uh, the enrichment plant, uh, the Fordo enrichment plant, which was built in secret inside a hollowed-out mountain 
was to be converted in a, into, you know, the science and uh, agriculture technology research center. So supposedly converting what was supposed to be a secret centrifuge into a research center. <laughs> but the, uh, but a thousand, around a thousand of those centrifuges would be left there. They, they had a few more than that, but a thousand of the centrifuges would be left there, but not used to enrich uranium again. This wasn't, if this site isn't supposed to be for enriching uranium, they weren't monitoring it. The International Atomic Energy Agency was only monitoring, according to the agreement, the sites that were using uranium. Point five, Iran's heavy water plant at Iraq, again, A-R-A-K, will be redesigned and rebuilt so that way it couldn't produce the weapons-grade plutonium and they weren't to rebuild or build any additional heavy water plants and would ship the plutonium out of the country. So, but again, from what we've seen so far, that is not something that was being strictly monitored. Iran was supposed to implement the additional protocol safeguards agreements giving the atomic energy inspectors more power to monitor the nuclear plants and other facilities. But as we discussed, as far as we know, that's only the ones that were active with any sort of nuclear material, specifically uranium. Once the atomic energy agency had confirmed that Iran took those steps, America and its allies which they did, lifted all nuclear-related economic sanctions, including the oil embargoes and the financial restrictions, and released over $100 billion, or an estimated 65 billion pounds, that's, you know, your UK currency, of frozen Iranian assets, which were cash, money, shipped on pallets in the dark of night over to Iran, most of it, again, coming from the United States and several different currencies, America and its allies also recognized Iran's right to enrich uranium for peaceful purposes, and Iran would remain subject to UN arms embargoes for five years or less, and the restrictions will stay on the, uh, the ballistic missile program for another eight. Those are the major points here. I don't see anywhere in this where Iran is losing, and I'm not saying Iran has to lose, but... When a country who basically says that they want to kill you and that's who their leaders are, especially the religious leaders and a vast, vast majority of the people in Iran are Muslim. And I'm not, again, don't, don't take this the wrong way. I'm not saying all Muslims are bad. All Muslims want death to America, but the Muslim leaders of Iran do, and they say it openly. It's not hard to find. So I guess personally, I don't see anywhere in here where I would feel safer, if, if that's a word. And so, anyway, my point being, that that's kind of the history of the deal. That's the details. That's personally why I, think, I thought it shouldn't have happened in the first place, is because it was giving Iran all this freedom, and it did absolutely nothing, nothing to help the people. 
absolutely zero. So, now that the U.S. has taken itself out of the program, out of the deal, what does that mean? Well, part of it was was um, the I, Iran, Israeli forces, uh, not not Hamas, um, Mossad, which is renowned one of the best spy agencies in the world, because. If they're there, you usually don't know it's they're there. You know what I'm saying? And they gathered information on Iran's nuclear uh, goings-on, I guess you could say. And it was presented by, uh, Prime Min- by Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu as intelligence, which he claimed showed Iran was lying and not following this deal at all. And so the information that was that was obtained uh, said that half a ton of files were moved to high, highly secret locations in Tehran after the deal was signed and contained materials that spread over 55,000 pages and 55,000 files on 183 CDs or DVDs. And so uh, Netanyahu said that the files, conc- this is a quote, these files conclusively prove that Iran is blazingly, blazingly, or excuse me, brazenly, I am retarded, I can't talk, I'm sorry, brazenly lying when it says it never had a nuclear weapons program, even though in the past both the U.S. and Israel worked together to sabotage said program. Netanyahu also said uh, he displayed in a presentation what he claimed to be an exact copy of the original materials, which Israel had now hidden in what they call the safe place, and included incriminating documents, charts, blueprints, and photos of Iran's nuclear weapons program. So Netanyahu apparently briefed President Trump about the program, and he also uh, briefed the uh, uh, Mike Pompeo, the Secretary of State, and European counterparts were also made aware after that happened. And so Trump, who we know since the deal happened, before he was president, calling it a bad deal, the worst the worst deal in the history of America, in the history of the world, the worst deal in the history of deals, said that he wanted to take the U.S. out of this, because it wasn't a good deal for the U.S. And quite frankly, I agree with him. But it should have been renegotiated, in my opinion, to not give Iran so much freedom to continue to do what they're accused of doing, which is building a nuclear weapons arsenal. So, President Trump takes off, takes us out of the deal. So now what? What, what have we seen happen? Well, I'm kind of, for this part, I'm kind of glad that we've been able to, to see at least not, I, I want to I say in hindsight, but at least we've seen kind of the recent history of what's going on here. We have seen oil prices spike because of this. And that means the U.S., if I remember right, and I wasn't able to find the report, but I, I remember something about OPEC raising its prices pretty much just for the U.S., for the U.S. to import oil. Uh, 
And that's why our gas prices and oil prices have shot up so much is partly because of just the withdrawal of the Iran nuclear deal instead of renegotiating it to something that would be a little more beneficial, not so much for everybody, but at least more beneficial for the U.S. So Trump pulls us out. The big thing is why. Why did Trump take us out of the Iran deal? The quote-unquote worst deal ever negotiated. He also wanted uh, Britain, France, and Germany with Russia, China, and the EU to toughen the terms of the deal. So President Trump, before this happened, announced that he thought the deal was defective at its core and adding that America was not going to be held hostage to nuclear blackmail. His primary complaint, which was originally conceived as a starting point for better relations between Iran and the West, doesn't extend beyond 2025. He also criticized the deal for failing to address other concerns about Iran, like the ballistic missile program or its, uh, or its support of Hezbollah and Hamas. Excuse me. And so, you know, obviously President Trump says some things that are wrong that are wrong because in the deal we saw that, you know, the ballistic missile program was to continue to be embargoed, that it wasn't they weren't allowed to import things actively for a ballistic missile program. So after uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu alleged that Iran lied about its program, uh, the information that Netanyahu shared seemed to match up with what the nuclear inspectors had already reported about Tehran's program, talking about you know what was going on in the 90s and 2000s, that up until the point of the sanctions basically causing the economy to crumble, it was at that point that the uh, inspectors, the nuclear inspectors, said that they stopped and ceased more or less all nuclear activity with the exception of what they were using for power. So, under the deal, the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, JCPOA, the United States committed to ease this series of sanctions, right? And the United States did so under a string of waivers that effectively suspend these sanctions, okay? So failure to renew the waivers meant that the sanctions would be restored, but under U.S. law, the White House had to allow 90 or 180-day period to allow companies to withdraw from any contracts or financial transactions involving Iran. And so this is going into Trump pulling out, telling companies they have, you know, 90 or 180 days to get their affairs in order to get everything out of Iran and, you know, out of the capital, out of Tehran, because the U.S. was not going to continue to be part of this deal. Because if I remember correctly, part of the part of the sanctions were is that no um, 
no like construction companies and contractors and stuff like that could go in and basically start working on Iran's infrastructure, building houses, building bridges, building roads, repairing, that sort of thing. And so restoring the sanctions um, essentially amounted to going back to everything before the deal, which would have been, I think the toughest sanctions were 2003? So but before uh, Bush's first term was up anyway, and um, excuse me, I've got a really sore throat. Um, it also amounted to a breach of the original deal, uh, restoring the sanctions, where Iran was deemed to be compliant, at least according to the international nuclear inspectors. So the plan of action had a dispute resolution clause that would allow Iran to raise a complaint against the U.S. for violating its terms. And that could buy time for negotiation, but Trump was so solidly opposed to the deal, which meant that the dispute me mechanism that Iran had was unlikely to do anything. You know, it, it, wouldn't, it wouldn't get them anywhere, and everything would just fall up to the Security Council. And... Again, if I'm wrong on this, correct me, but I believe all members of the Security Council of the UN Security Council have to agree in order for any sort of measure to be passed. And so basically, you know, I haven't researched this because I haven't had time and to be quite frank, I don't know what's happening now as far as except for the the uh oil prices and gas prices going up, you know, I I don't know what else this could mean for the U.S. And obviously, if I ran... Here's the thing. I'm, I'm just gonna, I know I've kind of gone off tangents, and I know my thoughts are a little broken here, and I apologize. And if you've put up with me for, for the last 40 minutes talking about this, I really appreciate it. But what I think is going to happen now is we're going to continue to see oil prices rise and the u.s can answer that in one of two ways we can continue to export our own oil and trade with opec and iran and other oil producing countries and they could try to make a new deal to see oil prices come down but at the same time we're also going to see the power in iran rise because yes this deal let, let's let's even give Iran the benefit of the doubt. Let's say Iran was working around the clock to make this deal happen as it was supposed to be word for word. And let's say that they didn't lie and they were telling the truth. Okay? Benefit of the doubt, 100%. Pulling out of this deal was a bad move by the U.S. then. Because it's done nothing but hurt the common person in the United States a lot more by having the rising oil and gas prices. And if Iran was following every aspect of this deal, they definitely didn't deserve that kind of punishment for the U.S. just pulling out like that and being stuck nowhere. So what this means, in my rube opinion, is that if Trump is to go back to the negotiating table, if Iran will even come back to the negotiating table it's probably going to take quite some time before Iran agrees to everything because let's be honest, uh, 
the rest of these countries that agreed to this deal, with the exception of Russia getting Iran's, you know, two-thirds of Iran's uranium, every other country got screwed in this deal. Where, where did we see any sort of positive outcome for our country? When did the people of Iran see a positive outcome of this deal? Because it was widely reported that the people in Iran, Iran's economy may have not been crippled the way it was, but the people didn't see that money. The people didn't see it going toward infrastructure, toward creating ways for entrepreneurs or more jobs or anything like that. I mean, no social programs over there whatsoever that I am aware of. So what does this mean? It means Iran is at a standstill where they're at, but now they have all of this money. And as far as I know, I know the the EU and everybody else in the deal that I am aware of wants to continue this deal and are trying to just basically go around the U.S. to continue to give Iran all these things. But usually deals like this go two ways. And see, that's where I can see Trump's frustration is that, okay, fine, you're going to benefit. How will you benefit us? How do we benefit from this? And maybe it was lower, lower gas prices because for a time there, we did see oil prices kind of bottom out a little bit. But at the same time, I think the other way the U.S. could respond is the U.S. has enough oil now. The U.S. is producing enough oil, not even talking about the new stuff that's going on. The U.S. has enough oil now that it, I don't remember the exact number or statistics, so I'm spitballing here. But basically, I remember like we could ba we can more or less keep a third of our own oil, and it'd be more than enough to serve the purposes for gasoline and you know jet fuel and diesel fuel and all that stuff. And we would see prices drop significantly. And that's been a question of mine for a long time: is why doesn't the U.S. keep part of its own oil reserve? in order to not be beholden to OPEC and all these other oil-producing countries so that we're basically trapped by whatever they decide they're going to hold back or let go or whatever and instead create some sort of world-free market of competition for the oil. Because I remember when I first started driving, oil was still under a dollar a gallon. In fact, I think it was 96 cents when I first got my license. Oil was at 96 cents a gallon, and I remember my parents complaining about that being high. Now, most of us are complaining about $3 a gallon gas. That's over a $2 difference, man. That's insane. I mean, if we kept our own oil reserves to, to use in the production of gas and fuels, imagine how much money all of us would save in just a year. So anyway, that's, that's my, my gist on what's going on. I think there's some negotiating to be done there. I think there should be a little bit more uh, interest in the U.S.'s side to go back to the negotiating table. But again, I think it's fair to ask Iran, what have you done for me lately? You know? And so that's, that's kind of where I sit with things. As far as that goes, you can tweet me your opinion at The Plain Podcast. You can email me your opinion, theplainpodcast.com, or you can find me on Facebook, 
just look up the plain podcast and I'd be more than happy to further discuss my rube opinion with you. That's why this is the plain podcast is because while I try to be as factual and accurate as possible, I fail. I'm human. I am subject to error. Uh, as Steven Crowder says, draw your own conclusions and yeah, let's move on to, uh, to my story, to, uh, how I remember life starting my, my oldest memories to today. So I was born in, I was born in the eighties. I was actually born in 1986. I was born in Minnesota and you could probably hear the accent with me just saying Minnesota <laughs> and I grew up around the Twin Cities for a time. A uh, majority of my life was spent in the suburbs of the Twin Cities. My dad, as far as I remember, all my life worked at Northwest Airlines while we lived in southern Minnesota. And my mom, for a time, she worked at a dry cleaners when I was really little. I mean, really little. And then when my brother was born, or at least around that time that she was pregnant with him, she started babysitting, and she babysat the kids in the neighborhood, which meant all the boys in the neighborhood, because with uh, with the exception of, let me think here, one, two, three, about four or five girls, our entire neighborhood was all boys from the ages of... Well, uh, they would have been born in the early 80s to the late 80s, early 90s is when all the boys in the neighborhood were born. And so I spent my years growing up on that street. And I had some friends, you know, on the street. I remember the first real friend I made that lived on that street, uh, his family moved in. And I saw him outside just kind of sitting around because his parents were moving in boxes into this brand new house that had just been built and I went over and you know hey you want to play and so we became friends and then about a year later let's see I'm trying to think what my age would have been then I would have been about six or seven and then when I was around seven or eight another family moved in who had three boys who their oldest one was my age, the second oldest was a year or two younger than me, and then their third oldest was just a year or two older than my sister. And I remember that my friend Mark and I actually uh, went over and started playing with these guys, Dustin, Brandon, and Steven. And the five of us, man, we, we hung out a lot over the next few years and then some people had moved in next to Dustin and Brandon and that was uh I don't I'll, I'll just say Grant and Nancy I don't want to use any last names in case people don't want to know and they had a daughter Nicole who was a year younger than me and a son Spencer who was a couple years younger than me and growing up man Spencer was my best friend. We were we were tight, you know, we were BFFs, BFFs. And we had a lot of fun growing up together. 
that's where I really got my love for video games. He had a Super Nintendo that we played a lot of games on. Our favorite games to play were Zombies Ate My Neighbors. What else did we play? He had a Mickey game we played quite often. The game we loved playing that we, once we discovered it, we'd rent all the time was a game called Storm Protectors based on the 90s TV show that was based off of the Trolls toy. And that game, even to this day, I still like playing every once in a while. And then we also just did creative things as kids. You know how kids are. And, I mean, to be quite frank, it's not like, you know, I didn't hang out with any of the other people, any other the other boys or even girls in the neighborhood. I kind of hung out with everybody, to be honest. And then when I, as the years went by... Um, I grew up in in Lakeville, in this town, and I got a little older, and my parents started talking about moving. Well, that was when I was entering into sixth grade, my parents had decided to move. Well, up until that point, there was a couple of boys I, I didn't really hang out with too much, just because, maybe it was because of the fact that I was in a private school, my parents... Ever since the, from kindergarten all the way through fifth grade, I was in private schools. And, you know, not not like private boarding schools, but like Christian schools where, you know, the Bible was taught and that was a big thing. And, you know, prayer and all that, all that jazz. <clears throat> Pardon me again. I'm sorry for my sore throat. But anyway... That's that was my education was I spent two years at one private school and then from second grade through fifth grade I was stuck entrenched in this private school that was extremely strict and it wasn't until I hit sixth grade that I finally went to public school <coughs> excuse me and it was the summer before my sixth grade year that I met Matt, who I also ended up being really, really good friends with. And that whole summer we hung out. We pretty much, if one of us did something, the other person was there kind of deal is how that was. And a lot of sports, a lot of fun. Our parents would let us boys ride bike to the school together and then we'd ride bike back home. And it was, if I had to guess, it was probably a good between a five and an eight mile ride, which I mean, wasn't terrible for some young boys. And so backing up a little bit here, um, that's just a brief history of, you know, my, how I kind of felt about my childhood. The nineties were a great time. I loved it. I loved the TV shows. I loved the movies, but, uh, I was always raised in church. I, I can always remember going to church ever since I was a little kid. You know, I remember spending time in the nursery as a small child, as a toddler. I remember getting older and going to Sunday school and the Wednesday night programs. And my parents are Christians, and they were the ones who raised me to believe in the Bible, to believe that the Bible is real, you know. And for a long time, I never... As a child, I never really questioned God's existence. If I questioned anything, it was the future. 
it was does revelation exist you know what's going to happen when we actually get to heaven and thinking like a child there's not going to be any nintendo 64 in heaven what will i do you know it just silly silly things like that you know things that seem goofy and innocent now were dire questions for me what happens when we die how do we know there's a heaven I never doubted that there was God, but how, you know, what was heaven? What was heaven like? We knew, you know, I was told it was there. And I was told, you know, if you don't believe in Jesus, you go, you know, when you die, you go to hell. And the thing I heard growing up for a long time was, you know, if there's a God and he loves everybody, why would there be a hell or the question is, if you died tonight, do you know for sure that you're going to heaven? Anybody can say yes to that, but I mean, I always doubted that. I always had that feeling like, well, do I know? And so I would constantly, you know, say that prayer, you know, Jesus, I love you. Jesus, forgive me of my sins. Jesus, come into my heart, come into my life. Over and over and over again. And it wasn't until my later years that I would kind of resolve that question at least for myself that i would understand what it, what kind of what death is and how i think about it how i th kind of cope i guess you can with the idea because i guess from my perspective i'm not totally convinced anybody's ready to die anybody's fully accepted the idea of death 100%. There's always that chance of, or that thought of, I want to live on. Anyway, so, I was 11 years old in the 6th grade, and for two years at that time, my parents had had, or at least for two summers anyway, my parents had had our house up for sale. And that one summer especially, the summer between fifth and sixth grade, there were a lot of showings and we ate a lot of McDonald's, man. And I mean a lot. I wish I would have known enough to have somebody be a representative for me to buy stock in McDonald's back in the 90s just because I think I would have made bank off of the money my mom and dad were spending taking us to McDonald's for lunch all the time because it always seemed to be around lunch or supper time when our realtor wanted to show the house. And I'll be honest, I feel like if you know me personally and you've seen me in person, you know, I'm, I'm not a small dude. I mean, I'm not like this giant sack of fat either, but I'm not, I'm not little by any means. And I, I feel like that's part of what contributed to my weight problems as life continued. But the house finally sold and we moved in September, I want to say late September, and we moved up north to the Fargo-Moorhead area of North Dakota and Minnesota. And I ended up in a new school, different public school. And man, I remember my first day. You know how people have those dreams where they're up front in class and they're just in their boxers or they're naked. They go to school naked or something like that. It wasn't anything like that. It was more an embarrassment of... I felt naked because of the lack of knowledge because the kids I was in school with were going over percentages and fractions. 
in sixth grade, and I felt like that was something I'd never been exposed to. Even at, and it, it was funny because at the private schools, I was like a year ahead of all the other kids that were on my street that went to public schools. You know, I was learning cursive a year before they were. I was learning division and multiplication and all this other stuff. And so it made me feel really smart, like I had a grasp. So going into the private school in sixth grade before we moved, I I felt like I had everything. I felt like I had it down. I wasn't embarrassed. I wasn't scared. I was actually chasing new adventures. Like something I did was there was a uh, school, kind of like a school news program, where we would make the morning announcements and that sort of thing. And that's something I went after because it's not something I had ever done before. And I thought it was interesting. And then we move, and now suddenly we're doing something in a class that I know nothing about. And I sit there with this blank look on my face when the teacher asked me, you know, hey, what's the answer to this? I don't know. And I remember hearing chuckles because I had no idea what fractions and percentages even were. And then the next day... (laughs) They were giving presentations on a book they had already started reading. And thankfully, the guys who turned out to be uh, my friends, some of them who are still friends today, which would have been uh, Randy, Mike, Tom, Alex, and Ryan, put me, you know, they brought me into their group, and I actually got a grade for the presentation. And we did this pathetic form of beatboxing, and they wrapped their presentation, which was hilarious. And by the end of that week, uh, Alex had invited me over to his house, and I actually made my what I felt like was my first real friend there. And even Mike was kind of nice to me, as much of a smart Alec as he was. <laughs> and so we moved to this other place, and... It was then that I kind of started to doubt God's existence because before we moved, I felt like I had it all. I felt like I had everything in the world that I could possibly want. I had best friends. I was going to a new school. I was I was a confident teen. You know, I wasn't quite a teen yet, but preteen, you know, an adolescent. And then my whole life everything the house i grew up in the neighborhood i grew up in the the people i lived with everything just got shaken up everything changed in in that in that day in that moment gone and i'll be honest with you i cried for the first good while on that four and a half hour trip to our new place to a place I didn't know anything about, a place I didn't like. The room I I lived in at the time had black carpet. In fact, I don't even know if my parents ever changed the carpet in that room. I can't remember, to be honest with you. But it had black carpet, black wallpaper. It had a little lamp in the corner for a light in the room. And it was a, uh, was it a blue light or a black light or something like that? And I just remember feeling like I had lost the world. And especially going into the new school and everything. And I was glad to make a friend. Don't get me wrong. I was so happy that I had a friend. And that I made more friends. But I was always teased. I was, you know, I was always kind of made fun of. And I grew up with some of that 
in in my first neighborhood in the first place I lived, but I felt like it was uh, how do I say it not not expanded, but I, but I felt like it was just a bigger thing than it probably was, and between kind of being teased and bullied because I wasn't I was a little chubby at that time not fat but I was I was definitely a little chubby. But I found that after that move, any time I had any sort of strong emotions, my first thing I would turn to would be food. And I'd just eat, and I'd eat, and I'd eat, and I'd eat. And that, even to this day, I still struggle with that, you know? Even to this day, it's it's still something I got to watch out for, but it's not as bad, certainly, as it used to be. And so I started to gain a lot of weight and started to get to be a pretty big kid. So I made my friends, and that summer was a little bit different for me, but I learned my way around. I knew who my, who my friends were at the time, you know, and I, I got to hang out with those guys, and we actually started to forge some serious bonds because we had to stick together going into junior high. Because junior high was, it was a, uh, it was two communities that had the school. You had, you had Glendon Felton, and you had Dilworth. And in junior high, Glenn Felton and Dilworth merged to become DGF. And so we had all these other kids that we got to know. And there's always that struggle, especially when junior high hits, of trying to be popular, trying to be cool. And for the next four years, man, uh, pretty much up until my junior year, for the next four years, I would do everything it took to be cool. I would try to be as hard as I could to be one of the popular kids. And that meant kind of being a piece of crap human being. Uh, being, you know, t- uh, turning my back on my friends and even talking bad about them. Completely ignoring some of them like they didn't exist. Even though it was a small school, like my my graduating class was less than 100 kids. But it still, it involved being a person I wasn't and eventually I realized that but I remember the biggest thing about the move was a new church and one of the kids that was in my age group that you know we had Sunday school with and Wednesday night and eventually when Wednesday night church became youth group um one of the kids my age I remember was kind of the one of the popular kids but we never I mean, we got along fine, but we never really hung out or anything like that outside of church. And I remember I got to be pretty decent friends with the pastor's son. And for a long time, pretty much until he graduated high school, he and I were pretty good friends for a while. And he was one of my best friends. And also the guy who ended up being the best man at my wedding, who if if I had to call someone outside of my wife, my best friend, it would definitely be this guy, Daniel who is a good friend of mine that I still keep in touch with, still see, still hang out with when I get the chance. And that's where where I met him was at church. And so church wasn't all that bad of a thing, but as you get into junior high and get into that popularity, or at least for me anyway, when I got into that struggle to be popular, that's when I started to despise church. I started to hate church. I didn't want to get up on Sunday mornings and go to church. I did, the, the only thing that kept me, honestly, I think, going to church was 
one of the first, I think it was probably the second year we were there. I was asking one of the guys about the sound system. Now, this was a small sound system. It was a, if you know anything about sound systems, it was a six channel board and it was very simple. All I really ever had to adjust was the main volume for the speakers, the two speakers we had in the church and turn down microphones when people were done using them. And that's it. That's all it was. And so for a very, from a very young age, that was really all that kept me going to church was running the sound system because it was fun and because I viewed it as a thing that the adults got to do. So here I am, this teenager, sitting in the sound chair in the back of the church by a cabinet, <laughs> turning the sound, you know, moving the the sliders up and down. And it wasn't until I would say probably eighth grade, maybe, is when I really started to doubt, you know, doubt that, that childhood thought of, is there a God? Part of that is, is because when I was 13, this would, this would be the summer between seventh and eighth grade, you know, going, going into eighth grade, I started hanging out with a different group of people and didn't hang out with my other friends quite as much. And that summer I started smoking for the first time. This group of people I hung out with, not all of them smoked, but the ones who did, didn't even offer it to me, didn't even ask me nothing. They just smoked. And I decided, well, hey, they must be doing it. I want to do it too. I want to try it. And so for the next 10 years, I would be a smoker, or at least a tobacco user anyway. Uh, there were times where I'd quit, like during football season and that sort of thing, where I couldn't be smoking as much and I'd chew or use tobacco. And I remember that summer just thinking that all the rules, all the regulation of life, you know, don't do this, don't do that, always be a good kid, always go to church, always believe in God, kind of started to waver. And it took its time until high school hit. And then it started to waver even more because being the Christian kid, being the good kid, being the kid who followed the rules, at least from how I was perceiving it, wasn't winning me anything. It wasn't getting me a girlfriend. It wasn't getting me popular. It wasn't getting me to be who I thought I wanted to be, who I thought I needed to be. And so instead of just rejecting it altogether, I slowly started to ignore it. And twice a year, once in the fall and once in the spring, our youth group would go to a camp and, you know, there'd be that question. Well, if you died tonight, are you sure you'd go to heaven? If you're not, raise your hand. You know, everybody's heads are bowed. Everybody's eyes are closed. You know, and if, if not, say this prayer with me. And you don't have to pray it out loud or anything. You know, or come up, come up to the front and we'll pray with you. Stuff like that. And not that there's anything bad about that, but it just, there was so much doubt at that point in my life as an early teen. And the, when I started in high school in ninth grade, which would have been, yeah, which would have been 2000, um, I got picked on a lot more. I got made fun of a lot more. 
you know, because there's twice as many kids to pick on you and make fun of you. And, you know, yeah, freshman hazing, I think it's a thing. It happens, whatever. But it felt like it never let up, for me anyway. It felt like it just continued. And something I started doing in eighth grade that I continued all throughout high school was to lift weights. And I'm glad I did because eventually I was able to stand up for myself, but not before I kind of hit a low point, not before uh, I hit this point of feeling, kind of feeling lost. And that's when I tried even harder to get into the whole popular thing. So I started going to basketball games. I didn't go to football games because I played football, and that's that's half the reason I joined football in junior high. Seventh grade was my first year in, but that's half the reason I joined is because not only did a majority of the other boys do it, not many of my friends, mind you, but because the popular kids did it, and so that's what I had to do was join football. And so... I was play, you know, I played football and that's that's another good reason why I lifted weights and then during the winter I'd go to the basketball games and during the summer actually my or the spring I guess you'd say during my freshman year I actually found uh go or uh one or, I don't know what I'm saying. <laughs> I found the spring show is what I'm trying to say which was the extracurricular acting stuff that we had at our school and so that's kind of besides debate where I got into some of the extracurricular stuff and so I would say my friends and my extracurriculars are what kind of held me together but still I was striving to be popular and so I hit 10th grade and 10th grade was a real struggle for me. It's when I started really failing at high school. When I really stopped caring about grades. I stopped caring about a lot of things. I continued to smoke. I continued to hang out with the group of people there. And not that they're bad people today necessarily. But just the fact that it was an influence on me that changed me. And while I don't necessarily regret all of it I definitely wish things might have been just a little bit different or at least that I hadn't started smoking so 10th grade I remember I had problems with algebra and or algebra 2 as it was for us going over matrices and other weird stuff like that and I remember going into my teacher who was usually there in the mornings and going up to her and because she was there in the morning. So if we had problems, we could go in for help. And this was a particular problem for me. And so I went in and I asked her for help and she helped me. I asked her for help again and I asked her for help the third time. And I remember on that third time, because I, it was just something that, it, that didn't click with me. It's something I didn't get. And that third time when I asked her for help, she just said, look, there's more kids than you go ahead and figure it out for yourself. I've got other people I need to help. And to me, that translated to me as I don't care. And it wasn't the first time I heard that. I also heard that in eighth grade at one point too, 
when a teacher told me he didn't he couldn't care less whether or not I actually did my homework. And that but the the moment that teacher told me that about algebra when I was in 10th grade is the moment I really stopped caring about grades. I started playing hooky a lot more often because I didn't care about school. I didn't want to go to school and get bullied and teased because a lot of my a lot of my my bullying was psychological because I ended up being a big and strong enough kid that most people most people didn't try to mess with me physically and when they did usually nothing came out of it except for one guy who slapped me in the face really hard and I got knocked into a locker that hurt <laughs> but that's a side story anyway I just remember kind of falling and slinking into what now I would call depression. And if I recognize depression, it definitely started when we moved, obviously by my depressed eating habits that I created and made and continued with through that time into smoking because anytime I got stressed out, I would leave my house and I'd go smoke, you know, and my parents busted me several times throughout the years, but it never, it never deterred me. It never got me to stop because as I slinked into this depression, I felt like more people didn't care. And as my grades fell, I would get yelled at by my dad who would sit there and yell at me about my grades and then ask me, what's wrong with you? Why can't you get these up? Do you want to be a failure? And I tell you what, I don't think my dad was intending to hurt me, whether he was or not, I don't know. I, I want to give him the benefit of the doubt and say he wasn't. But regardless of whether or not he was, being being accused of and and feeling like a failure was something that definitely dug into me and ripped into me that year during during that tenth grade period and really ripped something hard out because for all my life I can remember I love singing. And in junior high, in 7th and 8th grade, we had to be in choir or band. I was in both. I loved choir and band. And it was the same way in ninth grade. We had to be in a music class of some sort. Um, or I think there, there are other options like shop and that sort of thing too. Well, again, ninth grade, I was in music and band. And 10th grade, I dropped choir. I dropped music. And I was just in band that year. Why? I don't know. I just did. I, I I don't know why I dropped one of the things I love doing. But anyway, uh, also 10th grade was the year 9-11 happened. And I don't know if this actually made a mental scar on me or not. But I remember it was early in the day when we heard about the first plane and there were rumors flying around about fires in the White House and all this sorts of crazy stuff. And I remember walking to is either my second or third period class and I walked by a room where a teacher had a TV on and they had you know the cameras on the twin towers and you could see the one was already hit and seconds after walking into the room I remember seeing that second plane coming in and just boom and just almost feeling like there is this feeling of insecurity like, why is this happening? How is this happening? This is America. This kind of thing doesn't happen, you know? And so that, on some level, I think that added to my frustration, my my depression, my 
feelings of anxiety and not caring and all that other stuff. And it's, it's really hard to recall feelings from half a lifetime ago, but that's, that's ultimately how I felt was unsure, you know, not, not so much unhinged, but just unsure. And like, nobody cared. No, no one cared about anything because if I could have failing grades and a teacher could tell me to figure it out for myself and if people could sit and rip on me all day long in and out, then why should I care? And when I, a few years before that, when I was um, a younger age, my dad had bought me a shotgun for my birthday, my first real gun, you know, outside of a BB gun I had gotten for Christmas years before that. And I remember for a long time I had a shotgun shell sitting next to my bed thinking that if anybody were to ever break in, you know, I'm going to keep the shotgun shell by my bed and go in my closet and get my shotgun out of its case and go take care of business, you know. Because when in our house, everybody slept on the second floor, but when you came upstairs, when you reached the top of the stairs, my door was the first door there. And so I guess I kind of viewed myself as the first line of defense. But I remember getting my shotgun out of the case. And I remember sitting there moments before reading my Bible and praying. And feeling nothing. And feeling like finally God didn't care. Like God had abandoned me. Because I didn't get any emotion out of church anymore, except for anger. You know, being called a sinner over and over again, and that I had to be saved from my sins. My teachers, I felt at least didn't care. My parents, I felt at least didn't care. You know, and so if nobody cares about me, what was the point of continuing on? What was the point of this life? And I remember just sobbing, just these rolling tears just down my face. And I put took that shell, I put it in my shotgun, I loaded my shotgun, and I pulled the trigger and nothing happened. And I remember checking it and looking at it, seeing the shotgun was loaded. And nothing, you know, nothing had happened. And so I took the shell out of my shotgun I put it back by my bedside. I put the shotgun away. And I remember just breaking down and just crying and just asking God why. Why nobody cared. Why I felt left alone. And it was in that moment where I felt like almost like comforted by something supernatural. And like it was something that I honestly... I still struggle to explain, but just almost like a warmness, like a peace just kind of came over me and just this feeling of like, you know, God, like this feeling like God was just saying, I do love you. I do care about you. And that that was proof. And so for me, that was one of the first moments of my life really turning around and my my belief in God and my faith in that, in God and in the Bible, really being evident to me. And so later that, uh, later that year, 
Um, or no, it would have... I'm sorry, I, I forgot to mention something huge in that. Um, the summer before going into my sophomore year, so the summer of 2001, uh, was one of the first years I went to uh, this biannual youth convention, the the group that our church is a part of. Um, every two years they meet in Colorado. And so I actually got to go to that, and I... I remember part of my struggle of feeling like God didn't care was what's called the spiritual desert. And for those of you who don't know, a spiritual desert is just feeling like, like God is completely removed from you or you're removed from God rather. And that you, you don't feel the Holy spirit. You don't feel anything spiritually speaking. And so that was, that was part of that. And I'm sorry, I forgot to mention that, but anyway, so that happened and I, I remember feeling like that was a moment where God kind of revealed himself to me to care about me, even when I'm at my lowest. And I would say that was, that's probably been the rock bottom I've ever hit anyway, as far as depression and that goes. And so high school continued. I continued to get made fun of, but the, uh, my senior year, you know, I actually really got into my faith and we had a really good youth pastor at that time. And I got, I got more into church and my, my relationship with Christ grew, my faith in, in God grew, my belief in the Bible being solid and real and truth cover to cover grew. And all during this time, I mean, I was, I was still what you would probably call a bad person. I was smoking. I I started smoking uh, weed at the age of 15 or 16 and continued that on and off until I was around 22, 23, something, somewhere in there. Excuse me. I started drinking at age 18 after I graduated. Um, I had all these plans to go to a Bible school and everything, and that fell through because I couldn't save money to save my life. <laughs> And I uh, continued to, I started working. Uh, my very first job I started was in high, well, 